Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom, previously known as The Last Symptom of Borderline Personality Disorder. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. Make sure to stick around until the end of the show, because this week's encouraging finale is exceptionally entertaining and insightful, I think. Of course, I may be a, a bit biased. Before we kick things off, let me encourage you to visit thelastsymptom.com. That's my website full of free resources, and while you are there, if you get the itch to support my work with a donation, that would be very welcome. Also, anybody interested in a one-on-one conversation with me can schedule that right from thelastsymptom.com, and maybe I can help you sort some things out. The main topic for today is religion as it relates to emotional health, as it relates to recovery, and as it relates to you maintaining an accurate perspective on things as you mature and advance through recovery. Now, before we get started, let me set the groundwork for this discussion a little bit, because you know the saying, you never talk about religion or politics on a first date. (laughs) I generally agree with that saying. You know, it's not that religion and politics should never be discussed, or that they're topics that are always out of bounds. It's just wise to get to know people a little bit first. Find out a bunch of stuff you can admire them for. Get to appreciate them as people. Before you jump into topics that have a good chance of revealing things that you might not like too much. So do you get the feeling that this is sort of a lost art in today's modern Twitter world? That is first establishing common ground with people so that what you dislike about them later has a counterbalance, you know? A lot of the people you might interact with on Twitter, you, you, you might even realize, uh, having this discussion with me right now, that you don't view them as people, right? They're just digital words on a digital screen. But what happens once you start to get to know somebody? Well, you you spend a little bit more time, don't you, thinking about how to word things before you just put your uh, your feelings out there. So let's uh, set up a groundwork for today's topic because it's a hot button topic: religion, 
I'll tell you what. I'll make a deal with you. If you'll hear me out and give me the benefit of the doubt that I wouldn't be talking to you about these things at all if it didn't relate to recovery in some way, and if you can acknowledge that I'm allowed to have my own personal beliefs and that you may not have to agree with them, they, the things that I express here today may not be necessary at all for you to agree with in order for you to reach emotional health. If, if you can agree to those things, I'd say go ahead and listen on. If you can't agree to those things, I mean, if you're just going to get upset and hate me and uh, never want to listen to this program again, then I'd say skip this one. I mean, why put yourself through that? But to put some of your minds at ease, here is the groundwork for today's topic. Number one, this will not be a religious discussion. Even though we're going to be discussing religion, it's not a religious discussion. Number two, the common relationship between religion and emotional unhealth is religion to blame for some of your emotional unhealth. And finally, the purpose of this discussion today will be to dispel some logical fallacies, which is always fun. Number three, this will not be a discussion about whether God is real or not. Though I may often talk as if this is a settled fact, because for me it is a settled fact, and I'm the person talking. So it's going to require a little bit of respect from those of you who don't believe in God to be able to listen to me talk as if it's just a settled fact and not take personal offense at it. Atheist listeners need not view this as if I am not conscious that they're also a part of this discussion, or as if I don't respect the conclusions that they have personally reached on the matter. Okay? I promise, every time I've ever brought up God or the Bible, I've done it uh, hesitatingly, and I've done it with my atheist listeners more on my mind than anybody else. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I don't want to sound like a preacher. I don't want to sound like a fanatic. I don't want to do any of those things. At the same time, just as I offer you that respect and um, nod to your dignity, I expect the same. I'm a real person. I have my personal beliefs uh, that inform me. I just, you know, expect you to treat me like a person, you know, and that, that requires you then to be open to the idea that there may be some perspectives that I have uh, that do not align with yours and that aren't relevant to anything we discuss here. You know, we're discussing emotional health, how to escape emotional unhealth. Do I have a lot of uh, opinions and thoughts that, um, are not related to that particular goal 
Yes, I surely do. Number one, two, three, four. Number four, this will not be a discussion about whether individual religions teach things accurately or not. Number five, this will not be a discussion of me trying to sway your opinion about belief in God. Number six, in the course of this conversation, I will have to explain my personal perspective on some things. This is not my sly way of preaching to you. It's simply my form of genuineness and transparency. What are we on? Six, seven? I I don't have these numbered. All right, the next one. I personally believe in God, and this ain't a secret. Although I've never made my personal belief in God a focus of the information we discuss here, I've also never hidden it when it's been appropriate to share in the details of my personal story. For example, when I'm describing some of the thought processes that I myself went through and how it was never enough in my personal circumstances to simply take somebody's word for a thing, I also had to reconcile what I was always being told with what I know about God. Also, on occasions, you've heard me bring up God very briefly whenever I have discussed things that are particularly relevant to people who do believe in God. And when I do this, I often pause to address the part of my audience that does believe in God. And when I do this, I try to show respect, always, for my atheist audience by acknowledging that they're there, listening, and that the information may not apply to them. Now, here is the part of the groundwork that I want to emphasize more than all the others. Emotional health is not dependent on a belief in God. I'm going to repeat it. Emotional health is not dependent on a person believing in God. Now, every time I say this, I feel a pang of regret. As a person who himself believes strongly in God, more strongly than I believe in anything else, I would never say anything that could be misused to encourage a disbelief in God if I did not have to do so. In a second, I'm going to explain exactly why emotional health is not dependent on a person believing in God. But for now, I would just kindly like for my atheist listeners to take a moment and think about what I just said. What does what I just said imply? And what can you take away from it? Should this not be just another aspect of my work to solidify your trust in me as an honest and accurate source of information? It should. Should it also 
not solidify your trust in my ability and sincerity to not allow my personal, unrelated biases to influence the factual information I provide you. I'm not teaching you anything that is simply my personal opinion. Whenever there's something relevant that you need to know in order to genuinely escape emotional unhealth, I always share it with you accurately, even at the expense of my personal preferences and biases. So yes, this should should solidify your trust that I'm a person who's able to stay focused on the concrete realities of what exactly emotional unhealth is and how to fix it, and that I will never present my own personal preferences and my own personal unrelated beliefs as being relevant to your recovery when they're not. To understand why emotional health and a relationship with God are not inseparable things, you have to have a clear understanding of what emotional health is. What is emotional health? Is emotional health being happy all the time? No, it's not. Does emotional health mean that a person never makes mistakes? No, it doesn't. Does emotional health mean that a person never does bad things? No, it doesn't. Do only good people enjoy emotional health? No, emotional health is not something that only good people enjoy. Can some bad people enjoy emotional health? Yes, they can. So what is emotional health then? I've defined it several times in the past, but if you missed it then, here's your chance to jot it down and think hard about it. Because if you don't know what it is you're trying to achieve here, well, it makes the work a lot harder. It helps to have an accurate picture in your mind of what it is you're actually working toward and what it's going to mean for you. Very simply, emotional health is merely having an accurate perspective about the true nature of feelings, self, and life. On my outline here, I have accurate and true nature written in all caps to emphasize their importance. So now that you know what authentic emotional health is, you should have a pretty accurate idea of what emotional unhealth is. Emotional unhealth is simply living with an inaccurate perception about the true nature of feelings, self, and life. Emotional disorder or emotional unhealth is not any more complicated than this. I've talked to people recently who I kind of got the feeling that they thought of emotional health as sort of like a magic thing, like some kind of magical thing. Think about the natural results of living with very subtle, slightly skewed misunderstandings about the nature of feelings, the nature of your sense of self, 
and the nature of life in general. In the past, I've talked about the effect that this would have on a wall that a bricklayer is building. Now, imagine a bricklayer who's slightly cross-eyed but doesn't know it. Of course, you bricklayers will have to forgive me because I've laid brick, and I understand all the lines you string and the levels you use to make sure nothing gets out of order, but entertain my illustration here for the good of the point I'm making. The cross-eyed bricklayer starts laying his rows of brick, and at the beginning, everything looks great. But as the wall grows, every subtle, unlevel placement in each new row begins to add up, doesn't it? By the time the wall is fully built, it's not hard to see that the wall is crooked and leaning. Likewise, this is what is happening with those who are emotionally unhealthy. A very subtle misunderstanding about the nature of feelings, for example, may not be too noticeable when you're seven or eight years old. But these foundation, subtle misunderstandings are not harmless. They go on to create greater and greater misunderstandings about the very nature of many other things. By the time a person has reached adulthood, they are now experiencing much disharmony and unnecessary frustration. Why? Because of the disorder that their very subtle original misunderstandings about the nature of fundamental things regularly causes. See, their approach in life on the basis of a one premise. But this premise is a false premise. It doesn't correctly explain life. So they're viewing life one way and approaching it that way, but that's not the way life really is. Do you see where the disorder arises? It arises from their misunderstanding, their misconceptions about the nature of what it is they're dealing with. One example of this is when we as children adopt the perspective that our feelings are irrelevant and shameful. Do you see how this one erroneous perception goes on to affect our understanding of the nature of all people's feelings? You see, it starts off with our misunderstanding about our feelings, but it affects the way we perceive all feelings. Thinking back, I can remember feeling terribly uncomfortable whenever my mom would sing. Because when she would sing, she would emote. You know, that's what people who sing do. They get into the music and the emotion of the song, and the song begins to show in their body language and facial expressions. Oh, boy. Every time I'd see my mom singing, I can't even tell you how uncomfortable this made me. I wanted to leave the room every time. I felt that uncomfortable. I didn't want to see her. I didn't want to be in the same room as her. I was just ashamed and embarrassed to be around that. 
So do you see how my own fundamental belief that my, that my feelings are irrelevant and shameful, there's something to be embarrassed and terribly ashamed about, do you see how this also informed my perspective of my mother showing emotions when she would sing? I saw it as weak and shameful. I wanted to get away from it. What happens when somebody like this grows up and gets married? Well, our ability to empathize with our wife, for example, as an extension of our own erroneous certainties about the nature of our own feelings, is incredibly compromised. Gives us a false perspective about our wife's feelings. And what happens when we have children? Can we appropriately handle and interact with our children's feelings when we ourselves have an incorrect understanding about the nature of our own feelings? No, we can't. So the very subtle distortion of our understanding of a very basic thing in our youth becomes a filter that we use for all the rest of our life education and our dealings with others. It's no small thing. What is emotional unhealth or emotional disorder when you boil away all the fancy mumbo-jumbo? It's simply the naturally occurring disharmony or disorder of living with an incorrect perception about the most fundamentals of life. That is, the nature of our feelings, our sense of self, and the nature of life. That's it. It's no more complicated than that. Now let me ask you this. Are there people who believe in God and devote their entire lives to Him who are emotionally unhealthy? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know there are. In other words, there are people who live with fundamental misconceptions about the nature of feelings, self, and life who also believe in God. Are there people who are atheists who live with fundamental misconceptions about the nature of feeling self and life and therefore suffer the naturally resultant disorder and mayhem that comes with these fundamental misconceptions? You know it. Now let's turn it around. Are there people who are atheists who have an accurate understanding about the fundamental nature of feelings, self, and life. Yes, of course there are. So their lives don't encounter the disharmony and disorder that unhealthy people experience. Are there people who believe in God who also have an accurate understanding about the true fundamental nature of things like feelings, self, and life? Yes, of course. So, is good emotional health exclusive to people who have 
or are interested in a relationship with God? Are they the only ones who get to enjoy emotional health? The answer is obvious, ain't it? They're entirely two completely separate things. One is not related to the other in any way. Now, many people I talk to have grown up in homes where religion played a real significant part of their lives. And because of the emotional abuse they suffered, that they're now able to look back on and analyze, they now view religion as being a major contributing factor in the emotional unhealth they're now living with and trying to escape. In fact, it's my many conversations with this part of my audience that provoked me to address this topic at all. Because it's a recurrent theme, you see. And it has been a recurrent theme since I began this work a couple of years ago. In fact, it's not unusual for a lot of folks to begin their stories by describing their family as having been in a quote-unquote cult. And these folks now seem to be awfully focused on that. The cult, quote-unquote, calls them to do this. And the cult, quote-unquote, calls them to do that. And because of the cult, quote-unquote, their parents treated them like this or like that. Now, I'd say it's likely that in some of these cases, people truly were in cults. After all, cults are a real thing, right? They, they real exi- really exist. At the same time, I can say without any uncertainty that the word cult frequently gets misused. Just because a person dislikes a religious group does not make that group a cult. Ouch. That might be hard to swallow. Just because aspects of a religious group seem extreme to you. Extreme is really a relative thing, ain't it? Sure it is. Uh, Not having sex before marriage. Well, to a lot of people, that's extreme, ain't it? Is it extreme? It depends on who you ask. Is it unusual for religions to teach that sex before marriage is uh, not a good thing? No, it's not unusual. So just because you think that um, aspects of a religious group are extreme does not make them a cult. Your feelings don't get to determine the reality of a thing. People often specifically use the word cult when they have negative feelings about a group. And what they're trying to do when they use that word is to influence whoever they're talking to to immediately take their side. You use that word specifically to put a bad taste in the listener's mouth about the group that you are disgruntled with. Because you want to influence whoever is listening to you to immediately 
adopt negative feelings toward that group themselves before they've even had a chance to learn any of the details about which group it is or what that group is about. Does that seem very honest or reasonable to you? For example, I know of an international Christian religious organization that has 8 million active members in every corner of the globe. They view the Bible as the ultimate authority on everything they do, and they are arguably the most transparent religious organization in the world, yet people hate them, and this group still gets described as being a cult all the time. See, it's pretty easy, isn't it, to call a group a cult. Anybody can call any group a cult at any time. It don't make it so. So anytime I hear people talk about how they grew up in a cult, I take this with a grain of salt. I allow for the fact that it is possible that they did grow up in a cult. But honestly, what is more common and likely? When you hear the word cult, my family was in a cult or I was in a cult, what is more likely? That you're hearing a disgruntled person simply using the word cult to describe a religious organization they dislike Or, is it more likely that that person actually grew up in a cult? The reality is that the misuse of the word cult is much more common than people actually having the experience of being in true cults. Now that I've talked about all that, put those things into context, let me say this. None of it matters. (laughs) None of anything I just said is relevant to the abuse you suffered in the past, nor is it relevant to your authentic recovery. You didn't see that coming, did you? It doesn't matter if you were in a cult or not when you were growing up. Let me say it again. None of anything I just said is relevant to the abuse you suffered in the past, nor is it relevant to your authentic recovery. It is all All of it, pure misdirection. Whether you grew up in a cult or not, and no matter what your religion was growing up, as significant and relevant as you would like to make this, the detail is pure, irrelevant misdirection. And this is why We have to have this discussion today to break you free from this type of misdirected thinking and focus that seems relevant, but is not. And our objective is to return your attention back to the only details that matter. Do you know that I've met people and talked to people of all religious faiths? Uh, I've had interactions with people of no religious faiths. And among all of these people, one thing is certain, that in all of them, there are emotionally healthy parents who parent their children in emotionally healthy ways. 
Also, in every one of these religious organizations, and among all people who don't acknowledge or um, subscribe to any religious affiliation at all, do you know what also is a recurrent theme? That in every one of these religious organizations and among everybody who does not associate with any religious organization, there are parents who are emotionally unhealthy and therefore are emotionally neglectful and abusive of their children. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? This is not a religious problem. It's not a, an atheist problem. Bad parenting can happen under any circumstances. When I have painstakingly and patiently explained to you in the past the causes for your emotional unhealth, did you think I was lying to you? Did you think I was leaving things out? Where have I always accurately directed your attention as to the cause of your emotional unhealth? Isn't it true that I've always, without fail, placed the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of your parents? And why is this? It's because our primary emotional teachers in life for all children are their parents parents. They're parents. And in the absence of parents, it becomes whoever your primary caregivers are. But for simplicity, I will just refer to parents here. Also, how many times have I told you that parental, parental emotional neglect and abuse of children is inexcusable? What does inexcusable mean. It literally means that there exists no explanation or condition in the universe that excuses it. So now, who was entirely responsible? Now notice this. Inherently responsible. Who was, inher- who was entirely inherently responsible for your care when you were a child? Was it the cult? Was it the religion your family was a part of? The two people who were entirely responsible were your adult parents who had the capacity to care for your emotional needs in a healthy way, but who did not. No religion was to blame. When we correctly identify where the responsibility entirely belongs, this is not conditional on what their jobs were or what their race is or their culture or the area of town they grew up in or on what they knew or didn't know or even the religion they chose to be a part of. You know, the reality is that any good thing can be misused. Any positive thing can be misused. And a recurrent theme in the work that I'm doing is that I see that a lot of parents twist, twist religious concepts to excuse their bad parenting. This isn't exclusive to religion. I can go down to the DMV 
get the uh, the driver's test there, the the directions for what makes a good driver and everything, and I can twist uh, the words on that page as much as I want to to fit my own philosophies. Your parents were always going to be bad parents. They were going to be bad parents no matter what religion they were in, no matter what job they ever had, no matter what. They had no excuse. It was inexcusable for them to be bad parents. When we uh, look at our parents and we say, okay, the responsibility was entirely upon you. Is this an example of us blaming them? No, it's not. It's an example of us accurately identifying where the responsibility truly belonged and who truly neglected that responsibility. But are you starting to recognize what is actually going on when a person, uh, you, for example, makes your focus the religion that your family was participating in at that time? What is the person who focuses on and blames religion doing? Isn't it true that this is a subtle and secret form of denial? Because isn't the purpose of it to subtly excuse their parents from the failure of responsibility that only belongs to them? That's what it is. So I don't have to know which religion your family belonged to. All I have to know, clearly, is whose responsibility it was to provide for your emotional needs and who failed in that responsibility. Was the cult responsible? Were they inherently responsible to you as a child for your emotional needs? No, uh, no cult was. No religion was. So... How could they fail in a responsibility that was not theirs? The responsibility inherently belonged to your parents. This is the only information that matters. So do you see how now turning your attention to the religion you grew up with is logical fallacy. It's misdirection. Now, let me say that I don't believe that every religion is the right religion. I don't personally believe that every religion teaches the truth. In fact, I'm pretty confident they don't. But this is my personal belief, and it's not relevant to this subject at all except for me to say the following. I also know for a certainty that within every religious affiliation that I've ever been exposed to, there are both emotionally healthy and emotionally unhealthy people within that group. And if you're having trouble understanding why that is, think back to the definitions I gave for emotional health and emotional unhealth. Emotional health is merely having an accurate perspective on feelings, self, and life. Emotional unhealth is merely having an inaccurate a subtly inaccurate perception on the true nature of feelings, self, and life. Are there emotionally healthy and emotionally unhealthy people among those who reject the notion of God completely? Yeah, there are. 
Are there emotionally healthy and emotionally unhealthy atheist scientists? Yeah, there are. Think about that. There are extremely qualified and competent scientists who are also emotionally unhealthy. They may know lots about physics and still have a distorted idea about feelings, self, and the true nature of life. Do I need to pull up 10 articles in the past week about scientists proving this? No, I don't have to. I'll let you keep your eyes open for those articles. There's 10 a week. There's 10 every week about scientists, highly respected, highly respected uh, scientists, top of their field, doing idiotic, stupid, emotionally unhealthy things. If you just know what to look for, you'll see it in the news every week, I, I promise you. What is emotional unhealth again? It's an erroneous foundation understanding about the fundamental nature of some fundamental things related to life, the true nature of our feelings, the fundamental nature of the true nature of self, the fundamental nature about the true nature of life. Do you see that absolutely anybody can fall into this category? Absolutely anybody, no matter who you are or what your job is, or what your religion is that you profess, or what culture you come from, anybody can meet this criteria of operating on a subtly erroneous understanding of the true nature of feelings, self, and life. All it takes is just a little subtle, skewed education on those things. So... Is religion to blame for your parents' failure to provide for your emotional needs in an emotionally healthy way? No. No additional detail excuses or explains what is simply their personal failure. It wasn't the congregation. It was your parents. And your parents probably took the information from that religion, distorted it in their minds to agree with the distorted ideas they already had and use that as an excuse themselves. Don't you go on to excuse their failures by blaming whatever religion they happened to be uh, exploring at the time. There's only two people who had that responsibility and failed in that responsibility, only two. Not a whole organization. Not a whole congregation. Now, before I forget, let me address the logical fallacy part of this discussion. In the past, I have strongly recommended to you the book, You Are Not So Smart, by David McCraney. I still highly recommend it. I think that anybody who reads this book will immediately give themselves a huge leap forward in their recovery. Now, here's the interesting part about this book and the author. The whole purpose of David McCraney's book, You Are Not So Smart, is to help people guard against logical fallacies. Do you know what a logical fallacy is? It's when, as a human being... You are prone to rationalize a thing one way 
but in a way that ultimately does not make sense. And one interesting thing I noticed when reading the book, You Are Not So Smart, is that the author himself, as much as I like this book, the author himself, in the course of writing that book, that book that's meant to protect us against logical fallacies, commits a blatant logical fallacy himself right within the pages of the book. And it's a logical fallacy I see repeated time and time again against a belief in God. Now, here's where you're going to be tempted to think that I'm trying to sway your personal beliefs, but I assure you that if this were not relevant to authentic recovery from emotional disorder, I wouldn't even bring it up. After all, what is the true nature of recovery if not the effort to escape logical fallacy. Isn't recovery the work of seeing the true nature of things, no no matter how we feel about it, to look at a thing and being able to see it for what it is, okay? So now we're going to do that. And religion, a hot-button topic, just happens to be what we're going to use to demonstrate how pervasive our own ability to lie to ourselves is and our own tendency to erroneously draw conclusions. Many people, as Mr. McRaney does in his own book about illogical fallacies, they look at the history of religion and they see that time after time, people in the past invented far-fetched stories and godlike figures using their imaginations to explain the world around them. Now, here is the logical fallacy that Mr. McRaney himself makes, and it's the same mistake that lots of people make. Because lots of people have invented stories of gods and far-fetched tales to explain history. McRaney draws the conclusion that in every case... This is what people have done. Do you catch that? Because the Romans and Greeks, for example, made up a bunch of stories about gods and events. Then for Mr. McRaney, this is proof positive that the accounts told in the Bible are also made up. Do you see the logical fallacy? I'm not asking you to agree with me that the Bible is more than just a book of stories. But I am asking that if you're genuinely interested in escaping the logical fallacy pattern of thinking, that you must admit that one is not solid proof of the other. It doesn't matter if there are nine trillion made up stories about gods in history to conclude that this is proof that all stories of gods and history is totally invented by people's imaginations and that none of that ever happened at all. That's a logical fallacy, pure and simple. In fact, if a person is able to put their biases aside 
and to be painfully honest when approaching the subject, they'll see a pattern of archaeologists questioning Bible accounts and attributing the details found within its pages to human imagination. But what inevitably happens? Well, what inevitably happens is that later there's a new archaeological discovery. And guess what? Archaeologists then have to admit that the Bible described the thing accurately. But I don't want to get distracted here. We're not out to prove the Bible is a trustworthy book. The major point we're making here is that it's a logical fallacy of which many, many intellectuals and authors are guilty of, even the authors of books about logical fallacy. That just because lots of people throughout history have made up stories about things, that this is proof that all stories from the past that deal with God and that deal with great and wondrous, hard-to-believe things are automatically imaginary. Does any scientist know this for a certainty? No, they don't. No archaeologist knows it for a certainty. No scientist knows it for a certainty. They're drawing a conclusion from a pattern. All right? So they, they notice a pattern in the way people are and the way that they uh, past people in history exaggerated things. And they're drawing definite conclusions from patterns. But this is contrary to the scientific method, and it's a prime example of logical fallacy. Now, how about this one? Religions are the cause of wars. Is this true? Even if most religions are the cause of wars, is it correct or even logical to say that if most are the cause of war, then all religions are the cause of wars? How intellectually honest can you be? about this subject. How about religious groups who refuse to participate in war and whose members have even chosen to go to concentration camps rather than to participate in wars? Are they the cause of war? Well, clearly anybody who would say yes is not being intellectually honest, are they? Logical fallacy. We're surrounded by opportunities to embrace logical fallacy in our reasoning every day. The very societies that we live in encourage it. Even authors who write books about the very nature of the tendency of human beings to very easily succumb to logical fallacy, even these authors themselves, based on their biases, succumb to logical fallacies themselves. What I do not accept is the logical fallacy or that pattern of thinking that says one thing we know for a certainty proves the other thing for a certainty. As a review, just to highlight the main points, what were the primary points of today's show? I knew what I was getting myself into, but anybody who walks away from this show angry at me has missed the point of the show. There's absolutely no reason why um, you have to be angry at me for sharing my reasoning with you. Because guess who is holding a gun to your head and making you accept 
what I believe. Nobody. That's right. Nobody's holding a gun to your head. You don't have to accept it. The points of today's show were this. There are only two people responsible for the emotional neglect and abuse you experienced. That's your mom and your dad. Anytime you catch yourself trying to attribute blame beyond your mom and your dad, you are getting sucked into denial and excuse-making for your parents. It's a matter of personal responsibility, and that responsibility belonged to your parents until you became an adult. Once you become an adult, all of the decisions you've made are your responsibility, not any cult's responsibility, not any religion's responsibility, all right? Remember, a logical fallacy is when we draw erroneous conclusions based on the distorted or erroneous interpretation of information. So don't be that person. It's what you're trying to escape. And just as I'm willing to admit certain things that are contrary to my preference, I would expect no less from anybody else. Truly, your recovery depends on this sort of intellectual honesty. Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the encouraging finale, as I promised. Today is a doozy. best friends, Brian Lambert, told me the story last weekend about being at dinner with his wife and some friends. And his wife started telling the story about being a bullfighter against an imaginary bull. To demonstrate this bullfight going on, she jumped up out of her seat and she acted out holding up an imaginary dinner napkin to fight the bull. Her husband, my best friend, Brian, said, what are you holding up? She said, I'm imagining that I'm holding up a dinner napkin. He said, as long as you're imagining, why wouldn't you just imagine holding up an actual red bullfighter's cape? Thank you.